All right, now. All right. Ready? All right. You should be able to hear me. I can. Okay. Hello. Yay. I like it. Welcome to the Little Beaver Historicals podcast. A little, a little different today as we've traveled to Latrobe to visit the McCarl Coverlet Gallery. As you know, uh, the McCarls are very active in the Little Beaver Historical Society, as the McCarl Industrial Muse- Museum's name proves. They're very active with history, and Foster and Muriel were very active with coverlets. Well, I don't know what a coverlet is, so I'm here to ask Lauren Chirilla, the curator of the Foster and Muriel McCarl Coverlet Gallery, exactly what a coverlet is. Lauren, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Sure. Okay. Now explain to me what a coverlet is. All right. You want my short answer or my long answer here? Give us both. All right. Go ahead. (laughs) The short answer is a coverlet is a blanket that you put on your bed. The long answer is a lot of people don't exactly know the difference between a coverlet, a quilt, or any other kind of thing that you put on your bed. So technically, a coverlet is woven. Anything that you put on your bed can be a coverlet, but coverlet is the proper term for a woven bed covering that is woven on a loom, particularly by a male professional weaver. They're made commercially. They have very intricate patterns, and they come around at a time when people want things for their home that are both functional and attractive to look at at the same time, and they want them very quickly. So you can have a quilt made, um, make a quilt. Quilts are typically done by women. They are multiple pieces sewn together, take some time. A coverlet, in contrast, you can go to a weaver who is a professional, You can pick your patterns and you can come back one to two days later and have your coverlet made for you. So it's probably as close to instant gratification as you can get as far as uh, 19th century bed coverings go. Okay. You say they're they're professionally made. Yes. What era are we talking about as far as coverlets go? Okay. So... Uh, The bulk of our collection that we have here is made between 1830 and 1860. And the particular type of coverlet that we have is called figured and fancy. They're woven on a particularly special loom called the Jacquard loom. Jacquard, he was an inventor in France. He invented the loom in 1801, and it uses punch card technology. So if anybody thinks about IBM and the computers, um, earlier than that, Herman Hollerith and the first calculator, it basically uses the same thing. For, For those of you not computer savvy, if you think about a player piano, the punch cards put in or make a sound that's made by a player piano through punch card technology. The same thing happens with the loom. So the pattern itself, each punch card inputs the pattern into the loom and the weaver weaves it and it makes you a beautiful blanket very quickly too. So I like to say it's very early graphic design. I know Foster and Muriel were were probably the premier experts on these. I know she wrote a book or they both wrote a book together. Um, This is like the premier collection of of coverlets in the country, right? Yes. We started out with Route 380 from the Macaro family, and Foster and Muriel collected particularly these, the figured and fancy, the really intricate ones. Uh, 
at the time uh, that was the largest collection of this type of coverlet. Uh, since then, uh, since their initial donation, the donation happened in 2004. We opened it as a museum in 2008, uh, but we have more than doubled the collection. So we are 100% now the, the largest uh, collectors of the figured and fancy coverlets in the United States. We have over 724 pieces, although not all of them are the figured and fancy. But yeah, 100% uh, the McCarls were, were the collectors and the people to go and talk to about uh, this type of weaving. Now, I know Foster Mural, as they got older, were looking for a place to to um, keep the coverlets and let people see them. How did they approach the college up here? And what year are we talking? Did they come to the college? Well, when they started looking for places, they had several requirements. The McCarls, as, as you know, were very very big advocates of education, and they wanted their collection to be used both to educate the public, and they wanted it to exist and be able to to be seen by the public, not just stored away in collections, too. So they had been looking for places for it to go. They they were unable to find a museum. I think they were going to open a museum on on their own at one point. Yeah, they had talked they had talked about uh, building their own building and, and opening it. And they had asked numerous colleges mm-hmm. and different things in Beaver County, and nobody could accommodate them. Yeah. Um, I just wondered how they ventured we got up here. here. <laughs> yeah. So they actually had a mutual friend, a Father Joe Lemp. Father Joe is not affiliated with the college, but he knew the Arch Abbot here at St. Vincent very well. And it just so happens that at the time that they were looking, the building that we are sitting in today, the Fred Rogers Center, was in the planning phases. And St. Vincent was chosen, first of all, because, I mean, our, our campus dates back to the 1840s as a college and back to the 1700s as a parish. And so St. Vincent has a a long reputation or long history of um, heritage and preservation. And when they met the Archabbot here too, they just thought it would be a really good fit. And as far as infrastructure goes, it was something that was going to be really feasible in a short-term time period with the college to incorporate the Macaro collection and the cover gallery into the building itself. How many do you have on display at any given time? Usually we try to have about 25 up at a time. Our, our gallery itself is about a little bit over 3,000 square feet. And we like to also incorporate outside objects, uh, interpretive materials such as labels. So uh, typically about uh, about 25. We can fit more if we wanted to, but with the coverlets, as you saw, they are displayed best full. So you can fold them, but you kind of lose something in the visuals. Right. If, if anybody comes, and, and I would recommend that you come see the gallery. If anybody comes, you'll find that the, the uh, coverlets are completely unfolded and you can see the whole scope of work. Um, as Lauren has said, these things are beautiful. I mean, they're multiple patterns, multiple colors. Um, it, it's just an interesting thing that nobody thinks of. I would never, I mean, I know quilts. We, we have quilts at our museum, but coverlets were a thing. I had no idea what they were. Another thing I want to know is you do different things as fundraisers. What are, what, what's your most important fundraiser? Our biggest fundraiser, and now we're in the third year of this, um, it's called History Dinner Theater. And while it does not always relate back to textiles. Um, it's kind of a play on mystery dinner theater where you can come. We sh- 
do about five performers a year. Um, the most recent person we had come was Harriet Tubman. She came actually all the way from Ohio, um, 93-year-old Harriet Tubman. And she did a show, the actress who plays her, Carol Brown, her and her husband, uh, James Brown, he's a phenomenal singer, and they did kind of a, a joint uh, Harriet talking about her life and the people she had helped and incorporating a lot of spirituals and songs into the presentation. And they're really cool shows. We have some phenomenal people who come. Thomas Jefferson has come before. We had Abigail Adams this fall. We do some people who aren't even people, storytellers. We have a great storyteller that I've had back every year now because he is just absolutely fantastic, who does Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He came to Rip Van Winkle. So a lot of also folklore related to, to the region. So you come, you sit down. We have a three-course gourmet dinner that people participate in. And then after that, we have the show. And the great thing about the end of the show is that we also do question and answer. So a lot of people come in with the, maybe a lot of or maybe no knowledge at all about the topic or the person that's here. And it really gives them a chance to feel like they can interact one-on-one with with the past. I agree. Um, Little Beaver has done a few. We actually had Frederick Douglass impersonator, like, well, not really impersonator, reenactor, I guess. Very interesting. The, the gentleman stayed in character the whole time he was there, which is very interesting because he knew the facts and and. In September, we're having at our Roundheads reunion um, day, we are actually having a General Ulysses S. Grant reenactor come in. He does uh, reenactment as the general and he knows his facts. And, and this is living history. This is, is not, you just don't go into the museum and see things. This is living, breathing history. These people know their facts. They're playing, yes, they're playing a character, but it's somebody that existed, which I think, and, and I applaud you guys for doing this because it brings history to life. And, and in this day and age, people, and I hate to say this, they want immediate gratification or they want to be entertained. History can entertain you, but you have to grab them with something. And I think that really grabs them. Yeah, absolutely. The, the kind of idea behind it is there's this, this whole movement in museums, historical institutions, especially with the younger generation. Millennials are looking for an experience. And so there's something that's very different between walking into a gallery and being able to look at things and actually having that experience where you're being entertained, too. So not that one is more valid than the other. They're both both great ways to learn about the past, but it really, it, it's fun um, and it's really approachable. It makes history so approachable. Yeah, you're right. Um, we've actually in our museum have gone to more videos, more audio. This year, our theme is World War One, and I'm actually playing old World War One footage from the trenches and tanks. Oh, how fun. Right. And people get interested because they can see it moving and hear it. I mean, it's rare to see something 100 years old, but this is a 100-year anniversary of World War One, and we're, we're showing them what it was like. Mm-hmm. And we're to the point now where the, the great-great-grandchildren, they don't even know what their great-grandparents did in the war. And museums have to change. And I think, I think we all agree on this. We can't just be someplace where you go look at something and read it because no. people's attention span has changed. Yes. And... I'm sure, and I know you, we get it, I'm sure you get people coming to the cover museum and say, oh, that's nice, and then walk through and, and you know, they want to be entertained. 
So I know you do other things in the museum. You have you have other displays besides the coverlets. Tell me a little bit about that. So we were really lucky um, this past year. We received a really big museum deaccession. What a deaccession is, is when a museum is closing or uh, for some reason can no longer care for the items that they have. Um, the first thing you do is look for other places for them to go. Well, the American Textile History Museum in Lowell, Massachusetts, probably the place in the United States to learn about textile history, unfortunately, because of financial reasons, had to close. So unfortunately for them, it was fantastic for me because we gained so many really great pieces. Um, we have looms. We got all kinds of textile equipment along with other textiles. And uh, I don't know what this says about me or my collections committee in general, but they were so excited when they were calling us because she goes, we have our, your whole pile of, of things coming and you picked all of the weird stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. So if you want to come and see a lot of textile equipment that may not exist or, or maybe a, a little bit quirky as far as designs or things that, that are used, stop by because we have some really interesting stuff. It's funny that you say that because a lot of times in our museum, it's always the weird, quirky thing that people are interested in. I mean, you can have something that, that relates to history in, in your community or whatever. And it's like, well, they're not interested in that. But if it does something or it looks funny. Oh, yeah. 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 That's important. Your your main theme for the new display is and, and you explained it to me about the the cost, the human cost of, yeah. of these textiles. It has a real fun name. So our, our next exhibit we're doing is called Blood Cotton. So it, it will look at exploitation in uh, textile industries. So the one thing, as as Dave was saying, when you come in, the coverlets are so absolutely just visually stunning to look at. And uh, I just felt over the years of me being here that when people come in and look, they see beautiful textiles and they see the art behind the piece, but they rarely stop to think about the actual cost of, of human life and what the human experience was that went into making the textile too, because there is a lot of ugliness and really, really horrific history behind something that can look as innocent or as, as beautiful as, as a bed covering too. So we will be talking about um, two types of exploitation. Obviously, most of our, our coverlets are made out of cotton and wool. Cotton at this time is coming from the antebellum south too. So looking at the nuances of the slave industry and uh, how cotton and slavery and industrialization really all feed into each other too because then on the reverse side too when cotton is processed at this point most people are not sitting at home spinning their own cotton it's being done in factories and the two systems the slave south and the industrial north thrive on each other too so neither one can exist without in the other. So exploitation in the factory system is a whole whole nother thing too. So we're really going to try to pull out the the dirty, the ugly um, behind. Well, as much as I, I hate to say this, we're going to try to help her pull yes. out the dirty <laughs> and ugly. Um, we, we actually have quite a few different things at the museum. We may be able to do some lending to help their display. Uh, we actually have a set of, of actual slave chains that I'm going to see if we can actually donate for or lend for a while. Uh, we actually have vintage photos from the Philadelphia Museum Collection, which they, they actually printed these and sold them. But we have um, some photos from, and it would have been probably after the war, but it was still the, the cotton markets. And you see every wagon is driven by a black man. And even though they were free, they were not free. 
They lived as tenement farmers, still on the same plantation probably where they were born. And, and they were paid minimal. And then they were charged massive rent for their little chicken coop of a house and their farmland. So they were still slaves. And she talks about the industrial north. Well, in, in New York City and in some of these places, the women that worked the looms and worked to work to make yarn were pretty much slaves too. I mean, they got paid very minimal. They were considered sweatshops. So, I mean, you worked... There were no laws. You had six, seven-year-old kids working 12-hour days, seven days a week. Yeah, in progressive era Pittsburgh, at least, uh, textiles are actually one of the the largest earlier manufacturers in, in Pennsylvania as well. There was a great, I think it was 1916. I could be wrong on that. But anyway, in the early 1900s, a lot of the social reform organizations had great success because they were able to reduce the the child's work day and say that children could not work more than uh, 10 to 12 hours a day. People today think, you know, and we're not talking, we're not talking teenagers. We're talking seven, eight, nine, 10 year old kids that didn't go to school. They had to work to help support their family. Yeah. And even after the legislation goes in place, too. So we think of, I think even today, sometimes we think that as soon as uh, restrictions or change goes in, that, that that means that things get better for people. But particularly in a lot of these factories, what ends up happening is the children are not kicked out. They are not restricted. They're just hidden whenever inspectors come through. Can't remember the exact name or or what year it happened, but there was a huge textile um, factory fire in New York City that all the doors were actually chain shut. The, all the exits were chain shut and, and it killed, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it killed multiple, multiple people, children included. Yeah. Um, and, and my producers just told me it was the Triangle Waste Fire in New York City. And it proved the laws weren't working. I mean, even though the law was there, as, as Lauren has said, they hid the children away. And, and in a way, it still happens today. I mean, anything you buy from China, you have no idea if a prisoner has made it mm-hmm. or even in the Philippines or any of these countries where they're paid minimal money. And you're wearing their clothes or you buy their furniture or whatever. You don't know where that comes from. No. And then going off of that, too, while slavery is not legal anywhere in the entire on the entire globe, it is more prevalent today than has ever been. It's funny you bring that up. We had just recently did a podcast um, with the Beaver Falls Library about human trafficking. And they actually brought forward and said the same thing, that slavery is more prevalent today and, and we're not talking people owning people, but we're talking people that are drug addicted and they, they, they rely on their, you know, their pusher to and they're working for them or it's a child that's put into a sex ring. They have no way out. It's not that they're physically owned, but they are. They're, they're owned more than we know. So I think this display is going to really be interesting. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Little Beaver can really help with this. I know we have some stuff, and I know I have some contacts. So uh, we're definitely going to work with Lauren in the McCarl Coverlet Gallery to get this going. We're really excited, too. It'll be great, too. <laughs> All right. We're going to pivot a little bit here and talk about Lauren. Lauren, let's talk about how you became the curator of the McCarl Coverlet Gallery. All right. So... When I went into school initially, I had no idea that public history was even a career field that you could go in. And I went in with a history major, and I knew that I did not want to teach, and I did not want to go to law school. And so, of course, like any person's parents would be, they're like, so what are you going to do? I'm like, I have no idea. We'll freaking figure that out later. Um, But it was my, I want to say sophomore year, and... uh, we had a new professor here, one of my colleagues now, um, uh, Dr. Karen Kehoe, who, who had just arrived and 
was hugely influential on me. And uh, we we had, and I didn't even know about a public history minor. And I was interested in the minor, and I was like, well, I'll, I'll try this out. And um, that summer, I was looking for internships. And I ended up interning at Hartwood Acres Mansion in Glenshaw and organizing their archives. And I will say that was probably the pivotal moment for me. I I loved it. I loved it. I was like, this is what I, I want to do. So uh, my background here, I graduated with uh, the bachelor's in history and the minor of public history. And I went to grad school at Duquesne. And I never, I can say it's St. Vincent. I, I never really leave St. Vincent. It does that to you. It's like the Hotel California. You can check on anytime you want, but you can never leave. Um, so even if I wanted to leave, St. Vincent had, had other plans. And I had worked for the Arch Abbey as um, assistant archivist and in the PR department. And I really enjoyed the work I did there. And I really didn't have any intention on staying after I graduated. But my position here had opened up right before I graduated from Duquesne. And I had worked a little bit with the coverlets when they first came when I was a student. And uh, um, when the position was vacated, I said, well, you know what, I'll apply, um, see what happens here. And I ended up getting the job too. So I was able to move down. I moved down. Um, I worked part-time until I finished my degree. And then I started full-time in May of 2010. And I've, I've been here ever since. That's interesting. Few people realize public history is even a degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, although I don't have a degree in it, I guess I'm a public historian. Absolutely. Um, dealing with the museum. And, and, and my thing about public history and, and regional history in general is it's not taught in school. No. Um, we have people, and I'm sure you have people the same way, that come in and, and they have no idea what a coverlet is. They have no, I mean, we're taught the basics of history. And in Beaver County, as in almost all of Western Pennsylvania counties, there's more history here than you could ever learn in your entire life. Mm -hmm. And it's a sad thing. And until you visit these small museums where people like myself and, and where Lauren preserve this history, it it isn't taught to you. Um, I think our way of teaching history is wrong. I think we we go into the, the, the national history and, and world history. There's so much local that we need to learn. Mm -hmm. What is a degree in public history? What what does it encompass? Because public history in general is exactly what it sounds like, bringing history to the public. Um, so both public history degrees and uh, a, a traditional academic track history, deg history degree have similar background in you have to have some kind of understanding of historical thinking, too. So the processes are the same. As public historians or as academic historians, what we do is we look for evidence about things that happened in the past. We take the evidence for public historians. Most of our evidence comes in the form of not just archives, but objects, too. And I'm sure you right. can attest to that. Yes. It's so much of what we do is built around material culture or the study of objects, which... I, I can tell you, too, I'm because I'm a crazy person, apparently. I'm also a Ph.D. student because I went back and um, so I worked 40 hours a week and then to grad school. And uh, I don't think I really quite uh, understood the tensions that sometimes can exist between academic history and public history until grad school. Um, the second time around, because I have never once in my entire life not considered myself a historian in my job, too. And... I was reading a lot 
of uh, of articles talking about historians how they should uh, take the uh, basically the materials from other fields such as anthropology and public history and incorporate material culture into their studies. I'm like, well, h- like how do you not like include I, material I, I, culture? Right, I, I can't understand that myself, but I, I know where you're coming from. Even though I don't have a degree in history, mm-hmm. we get people that come in, and matter of fact, we have some people that are that deal with us. They don't understand object history yeah they want to just do writing and reading Mm -hmm. and and, but the world has changed people don't want to read Mm -hmm. as we talked before they want to see the physical item they want to touch it they want to feel it they want to hear it and that distinction between public and just a historian that's writing facts is very distinct Mm -hmm. and so i think that the two two fields have a lot to to learn from from each other too because they they work best when put together because I, I can tell you that um sometimes our students here there there are students who people who study public history who only want the the practical right route so teach me how to organize an archive teach me how to to do fundraising teach me how to construct an exhibit and you you can't just exist like that you have to have some knowledge of the past too because it's also very dangerous to go in and try to to do public history or do tell the stories without having that historical background too well, you're right and and I can relate to that because we found, I mean, just working in the museum, we found facts that people thought were facts forever. Yes. And then you you research it more and you find out this isn't true. Mm-hmm. And and I'll bring up I'll bring up a topic. We have a copy of of a quilt that, that a lady in the museum made that was supposedly for the Underground Railroad. It told the slaves how it was a made up story from like the 30s mm-hmm. that somebody made up. Now it was considered historical fact for years until this actually was brought up. So. Without the research, they have to be hand in hand. Yes. If, if it's not, if you just accept what what Joe Smith over here said, it may not be true. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's see, we were talking beforehand, too. Um, I'll do a lot of object identification for people. Um, so, yeah. So another thing. So if you have a cover lid or something at home, feel free to bring it in because we have a really great research collection. And I'm happy to share any knowledge that I have, too. But one of the, the largest misconceptions that people have when they, they bring things in, I'll come in and people have these really, really fantastic family stories of my great grandmother made this cover lid. She wove it on this loom, too. And then I have to point out like no you see see we see in the corner block here the corner block is a little side piece that can contain information up to the name of the weaver the name of the client who it was woven for uh when it was woven where it was woven um so they're they're great resources for us as as historians or public historians but uh, they ruin a lot of people's family stories because I'll say, no, like, I'm sorry, like this type of, of weave was done almost exclusively by male professional weavers. We have one known female professional weaver and this person's name here, that's the weaver of your coverlet too. So it was probably made for your your ancestor. They owned it, but they were not the creator of it too. I've actually gotten into arguments with families about <laughs> about photos and things. Yes. I, I posted a photo one time of, of, of Ambridge in, in Beaver County, and, and I actually got into a, an online battle with a gentleman that said, it can't be Ambridge because the Ambridge Aliquippa Bridge isn't there. And I'm like, <laughs> this is 30 years before the bridge, the bridge was built. built. Yes. So in their mind, because it's always been there, they think 
It's always been there. And that's not the case with history. And I'm sure with your coverlets, it, you can see the changing of through the years, how what age they are by how they're made and, and things too. Yeah. So it, it is. It's, it's very interesting too. But like I said, and that's not just knowledge that you get. Like you you learn and you study about the past. And that doesn't say that everybody who is a public historian, I mean, I, I've been in academia a long time and there are other people who have not gone through programs and are just as qualified. And though knowledge comes in many different forms too, but it's important to have that historical backing too. That's right. And, and that's one of the reasons we do these podcasts. Um, our time is about over, so I want to thank uh, Lauren Chirilla, the curator of the Foster and Muriel McCarroll Coverlet Museum. It's been an enjoyable time, and I will tell everybody out there listening to this podcast, come to La Trobe and visit the Foster and Muriel McCarroll Museum. It's uh, an interesting place. Thank you. Thanks. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. I'm not ready. <laughs> I, need, I need prep time. <laughs> no, this works out great. This Was that is, okay? Oh, no, it's fantastic. Good. There were more F-bombs dro dropped in that podcast than and, and he cut them all out. I like it. <laughs>